You're listening to episode 44 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Clayface 1, Clayface 2, and Clayface 3. And also technically Clayface 4. I mean, she's definitely in there. It's a small origin, but it's there. <sighs> so many Clayfaces. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I love Batman. He's my favorite superhero, so you can imagine how excited I am that the next two episodes will shine a light on some of the Dark Knight's vilest villains. For this episode, I've brought along two more Batman fans who are going to help me cover the origins of Clayface, 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 and Clayface. First up is the host of the Supermates podcast and co-host of the Power Records podcast, both available here on the Fire and Water Network. It's Mr. Chris Franklin. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, glad to be here. And second, he's the host of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast, the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour, and he's a regular voice on Aaron Moss's G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast. Please welcome back Mr. Kyle Benning. How are you, Kyle? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's great to have both of you back on the show. I'm so excited. And since you've both made numerous guest appearances on the show, I shouldn't have to tell you what Secret Origins is all about. But for anyone who might be listening for the first time, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And as I said before, this issue has four different Clayface origin stories, even though one of them is only two panels long. Take that, amazing man. <laughs> this issue isn't like the Phantom Stranger issue that provided four possible stories for the same character, though. This is more like the Manhunters issue, where multiple characters all named Clayface get their stories told in this one. The way the book is broken down is really there are three stories, each with a different creative team. The stories spotlight Clayfaces one through three. However, the precious few details that were known about Clayface 4 at the time were shoehorned into one of the stories. So we do get basically four origins in this issue, even though, like I already said, the origin of the one who would be called Lady Clay is only half a page long. And that's fine, because if you give female characters too much time and development, then the Star Wars and Ghostbusters fan communities lose their shit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Kyle, how did you first discover Clayface? God, I think it's probably got to be the uh, Batman the Animated Series. That's probably my first exposure. It was a, a great introduction to the character, kind of borrowing multifacets of the character's legacies. 
and rolling them into one. It was a, a nice touch. Definitely my favorite take and better than the, uh, or what I prefer on an origin for a villain named Clayface. <laughs> wow, I cannot talk Clayface <laughs> uh, as opposed to uh, what we got in this issue here. Yeah, I agree, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, Chris, what was your introduction to the character? I think I probably first ran into Clayface on the the second Filmation cartoon, The New Adventures of Batman. Uh, that was the one where Adam West and Burt Ward were back to do their voices. Uh, they had a version of the Matt Hagen Clayface on there. And then there was a, I think it was a 1980 Detective Comics issue that actually brought back Basil Carlo after he hadn't been around for, you know, 40 years <laughs> And Don Newton drew that one, and uh, so that was my introduction to Clayface in the comics. So it was kind of, you know, kind of odd that I met the actual clay monster Clayface in the animated, uh, not the animated series, but that animated series, and then met the original in the comics. So it was kind of this weird, okay, which one of these guys is Clayface? Right. Uh, little, little did I know. So, Well, I know the exact day I discovered Clayface, because just like Kyle... I met him through the Feet of Clay two-parter from Batman the Animated Series, which aired on September 8th and 9th in 1992. Now, I had started reading Batman at Detective Comics pretty regularly in 1990, just picking up the issues at a grocery store. Uh, I discovered a comic shop in about 1991, and that allowed me to grab some of the back issues. But I never got the Mudpack issues that we'll kind of be talking about later or any other Clayface stories prior to watching those episodes of the animated series. And I remember liking that character so much. It was something brand new. I never saw him in the comics. I never saw him on the old, you know, Adam West TV show. It was something new. And I remember when I finally did meet the versions of Clayface in the comics, I was disappointed I wanted what I got from the animated series. I thought that was such a pristine distillation of all of these little elements of the character that what Bruce Tim and the other showrunners of that series did to make that Clayface. So it was hard for me to rationalize these other characters. And, and then I started finding that, wow, I really like Basil Carlo a lot, but does he have to be called Clayface? Like, couldn't he be called anything else like the Terror? And then... Wow, I really like Preston Payne when I finally found his stories in the Marshall Rogers books. But does he have to be called Clayface? So the, I, I just had all these conflicting thoughts about these different characters. But I do like them all in their own way. I mean, but I don't want to get into this conversation too much, but just sort of previewing it. Who do we think is the definitive Clayface? Like, Kyle, I think you said the animated series is the one for you. That That's the one you think of as Clayface before all others. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And then, uh, I guess from a, a comic standpoint, my favorite Clayface story is probably going to be the, the Mud Pack storyline that this issue leads into. Mm-hmm. Just because you, spoilers, <laughs> have all four of the characters kind of rolled into that one storyline, you get the bits and pieces from each one of them that makes up the, the Matt Hagen Clayface from the cartoon. So it's still, in those four different characters, you kind of get that composite shtick out of the combined gestalt of four of them that you got in the cartoon. So I think those have got to be my... You know, the Batman the Animated Series being the, the definitive version, which for me, that's the definitive version of Batman as well. But then uh, that way for Clayface as well. And then comic-wise, it's just got to be this mud pack story, I think. Well, way to use the word gestalt. I can tell you've been reading Transformers comics lately. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Chris, what about you? Do you have like a, a sort of definitive or a... Who is your first choice for who Clayface is? When you, when you hear the name, who comes to your mind? 
Ron Perlman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the animated series. I mean, uh, the, yeah, just like almost every villain on the animated series, that's the best version. That's of course that's the best distilled version of of Batman. Period. Like Kyle said. So even though I met Clayface on the old cartoon, and uh, you know I met the different versions in the comics first. I think I first met. I think I first saw Preston Payne in Who's Who, and then the uh, then the annual that Alan Moore wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, that's definitely Clayface to me, and. Although I do, you know, have a very soft spot for the Marshall Rogers two-part story from that era, which is actually written by Len Wein, not Steve Englehart. Uh, I think a lot of people probably will we'll get into that, obviously. Right. Uh, but uh, even despite that, yeah, it's it's the animated Clayface. And, you know, he's, he's had a life beyond that, like in the Arkham games and... And the toys you see still look like that version of Clayface. There's a Imaginext figure that looks like the animated Clayface. So I, it's not just us. I think everybody likes that version best. And I think some of the creators of the comics liked that version best because they certainly tailored more Clayfaces to be like that. As And we'll talk about that towards the end. Okay, people, we're going to do something a little bit different on this episode. Instead of giving you the publication history of Clayface up front, I'm going to space the various character histories out before we cover each story. But before we go to our first promo break, I wanted to put this issue in a bit of context. As we've talked about sort of this mud pack storyline, Secret Origins issue 44 came out on the same day as Detective Comics number 604. That issue began a four-part saga called The Mud Pack, which saw the Cape Crusader going up against the combined might of the first four people to be called Clayface. And I say first four because in the years since, there have been several more people to go by the name Clayface. There's like seven or eight total. And like I said, that's probably because the most popular version of Clayface was the one from the animated series, who did not really reflect any of the Clayfaces we see in this issue. So this issue was very much a tie-in to that story in Detective Comics 604 through 607. For new fans reading Batman comics after watching the 1989 movie, this issue was meant to give them a better understanding of who these villains are that never appeared in the movie or the 60s TV show. So, we are going to take a quick promotional break, but we will be back in a minute with the origin of Clayface 1.0. Morning Fever, the new show from the Fire and Water Podcast Network celebrating the classic Saturday morning cartoons. Available on fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. Saturday morning fever. 
Secret Origins issue 44 is cover dated September 1989, but the actual on sale date was July 27th that year. The cover price was $1.50 for 48 pages. Mark Wade edited the book, and the cover was illustrated by Kevin Nolan, who shows Batman looking over his shoulder at four, count them, four different versions of Clayface. The masthead says, Secret Origins featuring Batman versus the Mud Pack. Chris, what do you think of this cover? Why is Cab Calloway so mad? That's what I... <laughs> No, uh, I, I, I like the cover. It's Kevin Nolan, but I like the, all, the way all the, the clay faces are kind of coming out. from. It's almost like they're sprouting out of Batman's back, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's a little bit of like mud flying behind him. But uh, nobody seems to know how to draw the Basil Carlo clay face, which we'll get into. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he, he looks like Cab Calloway with a knife. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't get past it. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Matt Hagen's clay face is, like, much runnier than we normally see him at this point. So he's really disgusting looking, and Lady Clay's a lot more vicious looking. And it's But the only thing I will say about it is Kevin Nolan usually works with a limited kind of muted color palette. It's maybe a little too muted, maybe. It's a little too muddy. Uh, the only thing that really pops is Clayface 3's gloves and his uh, the blue in his uniform, really. But... I mean, I like it, but I think it i think it could have benefited from a different color palette. Kyle, what do you think? Uh, I guess from a Kevin Nolan standpoint, it's actually, I wish he still kind of drew like this. Uh, at least Batman's face isn't as, I don't know how to describe it. There's a, a recently uh, Superman Digest they did. I think it was for the 75th anniversary that had some animated stories in that. He is not the right fit for Superman. Kind of gives him a zombie look. That's what I get out of a lot of his covers now, just kind of the grim, weird-looking faces, the scowl. So this is much more, I guess, closer to a traditional classic uh, superhero art on the cover here as opposed to some of the moodier covers that you'd get in the, the later 90s and early 2000s that are more stylized. So from a Kevin Nolan style standpoint, I much prefer this cover to a lot of the other stuff he's done. Uh, yeah, Basil Carlo there. Looking at him, the first thing that comes to mind is he reminds me of uh, the Godfather pizza commercials from the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Sandman 3 here with his uh, kind of flipper-like gloves. Give me the uh, Danny DeVito uh, penguin thing. But it also, so he's got blue and he's got red. It's uh, uh, Cubs colors. Since uh, somebody in your listener feedback last episode was making fun of the Cubs, I'm going to go on a little personal anecdote here. So I was probably 10 or 11 and went to a Cubs game in Chicago. It's about a five-hour drive from where I live. And we always got there early, watch hours of batting practice because you're going to pay that type of stuff for four people in in a game and get decent seats. You're showing up a couple hundred bucks. You're definitely going to take in your – get your money's worth of entertainment so you're gonna turn a three-hour game into a six-hour event by going to three hours of batting practice so anyway this foul ball gets hit like three sections over and there's no one else in there in batting practice so i take off running hop sections or whatever and it lands by like this i don't know like 50 year old guy like it's six seats away from him but i run three sections beat him there and i grab it and the guy comes up to me mine mine and grabs the ball out of my hand and he had flippers just like that <laughs> that's what his hands looked like and i remember just going like Ugh! 
one. Oh my god. Yeah, it was terrifying because I was like ten years old. But then I got thinking, kind of like fifty year old guy takes a ball away from a ten year old kid. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm sure most of your listeners are probably not uh, big baseball fans or Cubs baseball fans, but uh, he's got the he's got the color and the weird hands. That's just what it made me think of. So. Well, if Pee Wee Herman put you in a basket and sent you down the sewer, you'd end up like that too, okay? <laughs> All right. So, this cover obviously has some traumatic things for Kyle. <laughs> yeah. It affects him on a deeply personal level. Uh, I'm going to go with Chris's take. I, I think the color palette could have been better. And it's I think it's the muted background. Like, it's too purple. There's a little bit that's sort of like washed out. I like the figure design. I like the pencils. Again, this is this happens with a lot of covers where I feel like this would look better as just a black and white pencil and ink work. And mm. like it feels like the coloring on some of these covers was just an afterthought, or maybe just DC wasn't that good at it in the late 80s. I don't know, but I feel like I like the look of this, but it feels like the color makes me want to just sort of put it aside and it's not as interesting it doesn't pop as much so okay before diving into the first story we're going to take a look at the publication history for clayface number one basil carlo the first character dubbed clayface debuted in detective comics issue 40 published in 1940 only two months after the debut of the joker and catwoman in batman issue one Officially, Clayface 1 was created by Bill Finger and the art team of Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, but there's so much controversy over what Bob Kane worked on and what he didn't, you can take that at face value or not. After his first appearance, Clayface came back in Detective Comics issue 49, published in 1941. Then he dropped out of view for a long time, only resurfacing in Batman issue 208 in 1969, and Detective Comics 496, published in 1980. Like the other Clayfaces we'll be discussing, Basil Carlo came back in the four-issue Mudpack storyline, published in Detective Comics 604 through 607. After the Mudpack story, the publication histories for all of the Clayfaces get a little hard to follow, so I'm not really going to go into that as much. I think it's more telling that this character was one of Batman's very first gimmick villains, but he only had a couple of appearances before this. Uh, were there any Clayface 1 appearances prior to this story that I didn't mention? Not that I'm, I'm aware of. Yeah, no, I'm, I think that's it. Yeah. The one thing, and Chris, you kind of talked about how Clayface has a presence in some of the Batman video games recently. I really like the game Batman Arkham City, and there is a Basil Carlo homage or Easter egg in that on the Monarch Theater, uh, mm -hmm. outside of which you find where Bruce Wayne's parents were killed. Uh, there's a poster on the Monarch Theater for the Terror starring Basil Carlo. Um, uh, and uh, that's one of my favorite Easter eggs in that game. And we'll learn a little bit more about that right now. So, Kyle, would you tell our listeners the origin of the first Clayface? Sure. I'm not afraid to 
Our first story is titled The Coming of Clayface. It was written by Mike W. Barr and penciled by Keith Giffen. The story opens in a hospital as a mysterious shapeshifter slinks through the shadows until they arrive in the hospital room of a man in critical condition. That man is the first Clayface. And at the request of his strange visitor, the sickly man recounts the tale of how he became known as Clayface. His tale takes us back a few years, and we open on Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson as they pal around the Argus Motion Picture Studio. They meet up with Julie Madison, an actress and Bruce's current girlfriend. As they get the grand tour of the studio, they encounter all sorts of riffraff and colorful characters with a strong criminal element. The next day, at the film studio, amidst rehearsals, someone kills the power on the set and also kills the star of the film, a young actress known as Lorna Dane. The lights come on, and they see her corpse, stabbed to death. And so Bruce and Dick quickly slip off into the shadows to change into the dynamic duo, Batman and Robin. The world's greatest detective notices a strange clay-like substance underneath Lorna's nails, and deduces that this must be a clue to the identity of her attacker. Batman also deduces that the killer must be either the film director, the man playing the monster in the film, or the makeup artist. Batman also notices that Fred Walker, the boyfriend of the deceased actress, is missing. With sirens of the approaching police cars echoing through the studio, Batman and Robin take their leave. Yeah, apparently no one noticed that uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson had mysteriously appeared at the same time Fred Walker did. But anyway, that night, Batman and Robin go to the apartment of Fred Walker to ask some questions. But they're too late. Their flashlight probe into Fred's living quarters reveal his stabbed corpse. And then they discover his killer, a cloaked man with a fedora and bizarre mask, covering his entire face. Batman and Robin tangle with the strange killer before he sets the apartment on fire and escapes by crashing out the window. The dynamic duo elect to subdue the fire over chasing the fleeing killer. But Batman has it all figured out. He believes he's deduced the identity of the killer and believes he knows who will be his next victim. He believes the killer has a pattern. He's killing off his victims in the order they die in the script. And next in line is none other than Julie Madison. And so, back on the set, Clayface looks to strike again as he takes his deadly aim and prepares to send a dagger raining down on Julie from above. But the Dark Knight intervenes. With a well-placed battering, a well-timed tackle by Robin, and some good old-fashioned fists of justice to the face, the dynamic duel quickly subdue the killer and unmask him to find that Clayface, the man who pulls the strings in the slangs of the actors, was none other then horror movie legend, former actor-turned-makeup artist, Basil Carlo. The clay-like substance underneath Lorna's nails was makeup residue that came from Carlo's apron. Walker witnessed Carlo murder Lorna, so Carlo killed him as well, this time reliving his days as a monster under a mask, donning the creepy mask of clay. Now with this tale recounted, we return to the hospital room and learn the identity of the mysterious shapeshifter. She is none other than the fourth Clayface, and she is unimpressed by Carlo and feels that he's nothing more than a psycho killer in a mask and not worthy of this Clayface legacy. She recounts her origin as a lab experiment of the criminal mastermind Cobra, her battle with the outsiders, and her new life of crime where she does what she wants and takes what she wants. And then, as quickly as she arrived, she leaves Basil alone in his hospital bed, vowing that Batman hasn't seen the last of Clayface, and neither has she. 
Before we dive into our thoughts about this story, uh, I just wanted to mention the publication history for the woman we meet at the end of this story, Clayface 4, also known as Lady Clay. She appeared in just two issues before the story. The Outsiders issues 22 and 23, both published in 1987. Uh, she became a big part of the Mud Pack. Later, she hooked up with one of the other Clayfaces and had a child, the fifth Clayface, named Cassius Clay Payne. Ugh. Oh my. <laughs> I know. I know. And that wasn't even the last one. That wasn't even the, the last Clayface. But uh, okay, let us get into our thoughts on this story. Chris, your first impressions of the story of Clayface number one. I really don't like this Keith Giffen. <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, I have a hard time with this version of Keith Giffen. You never know which Keith Giffen you're going to get. This is, you know, lots of shadows, six to nine panel grid, lazy camera angle, Keith Giffen. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure if I would call it lazy camera angle. It seems almost intentionally obstructionist. Like he's well, choosing to do these weird angles and it pisses me off. Yeah, well, that's. I'm not, I think he's doing that so he didn't have to draw as much. I'm convinced. Maybe <laughs> it might not be, but it just for me it never works. I've never liked that when he pulls this style out, and and, and right around this time he was using this style. And he was using the the fathead style where everybody looks like they're sticking their head down into their neck over in Legion. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I know Keith Giffen's capable of more traditional superhero stuff. And, you know, I, I don't begrudge the guy for experimenting a bit, but, I, <laughs> yeah, I just I can't get past it. Yeah. And I love Mike W. Barr's Batman. Uh, his, he's one of my favorite Batman writers. And uh, that's my first impression. We'll get into it more. I don't want to I don't want to tell everybody's commentary thunder. Kyle, what'd you think? It's hard to believe this is the same artist because uh, right now over at the Legion of Superbloggers every Thursday, I'm going through the Great Darkness saga, mm -hmm. which uh, Shag brought up in the be the most recent episode that was released. He mentioned Legion of Superbloggers and that story arc many times, but of course he never missed my coverage. <laughs> Shag. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, you know, to see... In my opinion, that's the greatest his artwork ever was. I mean, there he's the top of his game as an artist. He's just got this clean, amazing, dynamic style. And going from reading that, I think the last issue I covered would have been the, the first one before Legion Annual number one. So 288, I think, was the last one, I, one I've covered most recently. And that was, you know, might be one of the, the best single issues Keith Giffen's ever done. And then to see this, it's just, what the hell are you thinking, man? You're drunk. Go home. I <laughs> Has he ever talked about why the drastic style change? I mean, the first thing I picked up on it would have been the 1987 Dr. Fate series. And uh, this is even beyond that. I mean, that's pretty kooky and stylized and out there. But this takes it to a whole new level. You know, is he trying to emulate Frank Miller a little bit or sees the how accepted or groundbreaking Frank Miller's work was and thinks that he kind of wants to dabble in that looser heavy shadow, heavy line style or what I've never come across an article or interview with him that explained why he switched gears so much from that just gorgeous art that he was doing in 82 would have been the, the great darkness saga to what we're getting here. I don't really know the reason. The first time I remember seeing it was uh, there was that action comics issue where, that it had like the last vampire or something like that. It was pre-crisis. Pre-crisis, yeah. Right, yeah. And it, so it was like 1984 or something. And that's yeah, the that's first time I saw him kind of go into this style. 
And you were talking about Dr. Fate, Kyle. In the All-Star Squadron Annual Number 3, his Dr. Fate chapter looked quite a bit like this. Not quite this extreme, but it was in this same kind of vein. So he was monkeying around with it, I think, before Frank Miller quite became Frank Miller. So I, I don't know who to blame it on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I don't know what the reason is, but I know I don't like it. The first note that I wrote down was, damn it, Keith Giffen. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, I didn't like this style on the Creeper origin story. I didn't like it on the Dr. Fate miniseries that you mentioned. The guy's got some game. Like you said, I mean, I, I just recently, within the past couple months, was reading the Great Darkness saga that you were talking about, Kyle. And I love those issues. And then I get to this, and the first page, what the hell am I looking at? Why won't he draw faces? Like, he does something like... The woman who we find is Lady Clay. He never draws her face. He always has the same, no matter what shape she takes, whether it's the nurse or the security guard or later, there's always this shadow covering her face except for her forehead. Now, I think I know that he was doing that so that you could tell exactly which character she is, even when she's taking the form of another person. But... What are you looking at if you, the character doesn't have a face? It makes it hard to follow. And then you turn it to page two, the splash page, and I wrote it again. Damn it! Seriously, Keith Giffen? Like, what, what the hell image is this? Like, what uh, What an awful splash page. You can't see who Batman... You can barely see Batman jumping out of the shadows, but what is he going after? Who is this Clayface? You can't see his head. You can't see his face. His hat is down. You can barely tell where his arms are, except for the hand that's clutching the knife. He never gives us a good glimpse of Clayface's mask, of the face. This art is... This was difficult. Like, I didn't want to read this story. I kept wanting to stop reading it. And I'm with Chris. I love Mike W. Barr's Batman takes. This was just... Oh, I hated this art. This like, repulsive, almost. Mm-hmm. And, and that's strong. But again, like, Keith Giffen has an artist with serious chops. I like his work on other stuff. But this style from this era, I, I hate it. And this is maybe the worst of it, I think. The, the very crude art in the original is far superior to this. Agreed. <laughs> and the one thing he has, I will say that with all the blacks and everything he's got, he does capture a bit of that mood. That's the only positive thing I can say about the art is it does have a bit of that Mysterioso, as Bob Kane always said, that Mysterioso mood of the early Batman comics, which I love. I, I, you know, Even though the art's crude, there's an energy to him that I think is what made Batman stand out from a lot of the other Golden Age strips. But that's all he's got. I mean, because, I mean, what's the hell's up with the yellow bat symbol? It looks like Batgirl on steroids is beating the hell out of everybody. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, Batman didn't look like it at the time. It was like there wasn't any communication between the bat office and the story because Basil Carlo in the story doesn't look like Basil Carlo ever looked. Like mm-hmm. he draws him as this sort of rotund, fat, baldy guy with his like ugly like face just in his normal thing. That's not how Basil Carlo looked in the Detective Comics issues or in his original appearance. I don't know if there just wasn't any communication or if Giffen was just like, screw you guys, I'm doing my own thing. But well, the, screw the, you guys, I'm going home. <laughs> exactly. yeah. There's nothing consistent about the way he draws Carlo at all. I mean, we get that just absolutely horrendous looking panel the the last panel on the first page there he's we're looking up his giant schnoz mm-hmm. he's doing his worst uh gil kane impression and <laughs> then throughout the rest of the book half the panels it doesn't even look like he has a nose it looks like voldemort he's just got two little slits 
<laughs> but, you know, if they were, Chris mentioned the, the mood. If he's trying to go for that mysterioso and mood and just the way he draws Bruce Wayne with the big square jaw and everything, I'm thinking, why the hell didn't they get Howard Chaykin to do this? Mm. It's, of- it's like he's trying to do a poor man's Howard Chaykin. I mean, that's what it reminds me of. He's Bruce Wayne looks like a, a poor knockoff of his American flag character, and you get that, <laughs> that mood and shadow that Chaykin is amazing at. I would have loved to see Howard Chaykin draw this story and try to invoke this type of aesthetic. I was going to say, I think Bruce Wayne looks like Dick Tracy in the story because we, I see only that, yeah. ever, we only ever see him in profile. There is never a front-on shot of Bruce Wayne in this. He's always either with his back to us, he's in shadow, or there's like two panels where we just get profile shots. And this is basic storytelling. This is basic sequential storytelling. What are you doing? It's Maybe it's laziness, but it feels almost intentionally kind of just like I'm going to make you work harder to understand what the story is and uh, no that's why are you doing that I, I, one thing that really jumped out at me was the gangster uh, what was his name uh, Roxy or whatever his name was he was looked rotund on page 4 and then when Batman roughs him up on page 7 he's now got that elongated Keith Giffen head and he looks like he weighs maybe 98 pounds soaking wet <laughs> I mean it's like oh, that's yeah, supposed to be no, the same like- guy it was like that for multiple characters. I had to keep flipping back. And which character is this from, you know, page, whatever it was, three or four, where we kind of get meet all these characters that all look horrendous, like they hit every branch on the ugly tree falling down. And, <laughs> yeah, you got to keep flipping back. Which character is this supposed to be now? Oh, is that the beefy-looking Bond guy from five pages ago? And Okay, so <laughs> I, I want to ah. move I know I we're we're all on the same page about the art. I want to move past that because I don't just want to trash this thing for the art for the rest of the episode. We're in agreement about the art. Let's think about the actual story. What do we think about the details of the story, the characters, the script, other thoughts about those things? Well, obviously, uh, Basil Carlo is a obvious analog of Boris Karloff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. Karloff, sidekick, f- you. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Definitely interesting to just that that tie into the character and, you know, knowing about uh, Boris Karloff and his role in monster movies, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, obviously that's right up Chris's alley there. That's uh, yeah, buddy (laughs) hooks you right into the character right a bit, which is perfect for uh, Golden Age stories. I've talked about that quite a bit. And some of the Golden Age comics I've covered before is these kind of knockoff characters that invoke the same look or aesthetic as other characters like uh, quality comics, uh, police comics. Number one, there were two different characters that were very similar to the spirit and look. And, you know, when you're talking about the, the golden age, you got a six or seven page or eight page story. You don't have a whole lot for character development. So if you can use shorthand to kind of tie into the zeitgeist or what else is popular, you're kind of already just by seeing the character painting a little bit of character development in the reader's mind. It's a great shorthand technique. And I assume that's what uh, they were going with in the golden age here, make him a Boris Karloff analog and you don't have to do a whole lot of development or backstory on it you're already filling in the reader just from that right cultural osmosis so uh because of that uh, the character is definitely a uh, pretty cool or uh, a neat gimmick to him yeah i think you know kyle hit the nail on the head he's, he's got you know pretty close to karloff's name and that role of the boogeyman and there's a little bit of lon cheney senior with doing his own makeup and maybe basil rathbone's name in there because he was in the horror films at the time too and and sherlock holmes and mystery uh, movies so there's a lot in the character you know they the, the golden age comics like kyle said they, they didn't try to hide when they would <laughs> just basically uh 
they, they didn't have to be too slick about when they borrowed elements from pop culture. And I think the character, you know, I think he could have been, uh, you know, a recurring Batman villain more than he did. I, you know, it's kind of surprised they didn't do more with him. Now, this version of the story versus the original Barr did make some changes. And as much as I love Mike W. Barr, I think the original actually read a little better. Because there were elements uh, like Clayface was an old character of Carlos uh, in addition to the terror. And the whole deal with the apron and the makeup, which maybe it was Giffen's art, but I couldn't even hardly make sense of that. That whole deal that the clay came from his apron and because you didn't see that, which I don't know. Again, I think that not to keep harping on the art, but I think that might have been Giffen's art letting the story down. But the original story just reads better all the way around than this one. I agree with oh, you. I definitely agree. I wish they would have just dropped that angle because of Giffen's art in here, because it's not really seated very well in the artwork. It seems very convoluted at the end when you get to it. You know, I wish they would have just gone with Walker saw Carlo Killer. So once he silenced Walker, no one else would know it was Carlo. So he just, to avoid being spotted in the act of off and Walker, he just decided it would be prudent to wear a mask the rest of the time. And that's why you get the clay face mask. Mm-hmm. That would have been a much better fit in the story than the, seemed very convoluted and shoehorned in this retelling here and from a story standpoint the first seven and a half pages of this thing just seem very unevenly paced it's really until you get batman and robin going into uh, fred walker's apartment there on page eight Mm -hmm. that it finally starts to get a little bit uh, smoother and i think that really surprised me because i'm a big mike w Barr fan as well i love his batman the outsiders work and uh I think, again, that's just going to fall in the artwork. It's just poor sequential storytelling. It's not just a style thing that the art is not doing any storytelling whatsoever. And that just makes those first seven and a half pages just seem really choppy, bouncing back and forth between characters that, honestly, reading the first seven and a half pages, it remind me a lot of the storytelling style of Man of Steel. It mm. is all over the place. It's, we never it's get It's very a, choppy. We don't get an establishing shot. We don't know where we are. I, I can see that. And I think... Part, that does go to some element of the pacing because the first couple pages of this are all about establishing all of these different characters on this movie set, basically to give us red herrings and possible murder suspects. But the rest of the story feels so rushed that most of those suspects don't matter and we don't really spend enough time with them to think that they might be the killer. And I agree with Chris. I think the pacing and just like the structure of the original from Detective Comics 40 read better. It read a little bit more coherently with the art and the pacing and the reveal of the characters. This one, I feel like you could cut out a lot of those couple pages and, well, you're not missing much because it's all over. But yeah, I I definitely get like the, we don't get establishing shots. It's, we're told that we're in a movie studio, but nothing about the art would lend us to understand that we're in a movie studio. And the pace being quickened in the original story, it's if you read it, uh, Julie says, you know, a week later they decide to go ahead and, and do the movie and, and continue with the filming. In this one, it's like the girl got killed and they're going to go on and film like an hour later. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's hard to buy even in a comic book. I'm sorry. Somebody's murdered on a set. They're going to shut down production yeah. for at least for a week. I mean, come on. You know? <laughs> and the Julie in question is... Bruce's former girlfriend, Julie Madison, who we last saw in Secret Origins issue six. Chris, remember that? Yes, and now she's a blonde for some mad reason, even though she was never a blonde in the comics. She's <laughs> a blonde with like a short, obviously 1980s haircut. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Speaking of that, let's just admit Roy Thomas would have handled this better. <laughs> I will not dispute that. <laughs> yep, I agree. Getting back to Basil Carlo, I I like him. I like him a lot because he plays into so many things that I do like. I like stories set in old Hollywood. I like mysteries. I, I like Jack the Ripper type of stories or the sort of gothic, you know, monster characters like, you know, Mr. Hyde. And he feels certainly of a piece with them. Like, I can see this type of character belonging to that genre of stories and that genre of movie monsters. And this is the one that stands out the most where if you never called him Clayface, if you called him the Terror or some other weird face, false face even, to borrow the name of the 60s character from the TV show, if you did something like that, you wouldn't have to connect him with the mud pack characters. He he's so distinct from them, and you could have him as just this, you know, guy who dresses like a gentleman, like a gothic Jack the Ripper type, but with this horribly disfigured face going around slashing people. And I like that idea for a Batman villain. I, I wanna see that story. Of the comic book characters, he's probably my favorite clayface but he's also the one that I wish wasn't named Clayface because I think he could exist outside of the shadow of the, of the other ones. I can see that. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, one other just minor note, and I don't know why this one came to me. The star of the movie that is murdered in this thing, her name is Lorna Dane. That's the same name as Polaris, Polaris. from the X. Yeah, exactly. Polaris. From the <laughs> yeah, I was, that always threw me when I was little. Was, What's Polaris doing in this comic? Where's her green hair? Yeah. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts about this story before we move on? I mean, we all agree about the art. It fails on a spectacular level. The story, but the, I, I think the story itself has other problems too. But. Uh, yeah. Just a thought, just a thought. How cool would it have been if they had adapted this story? They had to cut back on the murder, but the original story onto the Batman TV show and had Vincent Price play this Clayface instead of Egghead. Because <laughs> he played that type of character multiple times in his career. So that would have been really cool to see. I have another what if for you. Okay. What if this story would have been retooled and done in a full-size comic? Written and drawn by Darwin Cook. Oh. Both of you guys are pissing me off right now. <laughs> That's all I could think of this with uh, just the pulpy moodiness and, you know, you get uh, the Phantom of the Opera vibe of him slinking around the movie set. And I'm just thinking, God, it would have been amazing to see Darwin Cook draw this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate you both. Because, <laughs> you, oh, what the world would have been, so... All right, people, uh, I'm going to process those, you know, parallel universes where those things might have happened. Uh, and while I do that, we are going to take another break. When we come back, I will tell you all about the story of Clayface number two. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, 
random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes, just search for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store, or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomics.giantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Clayface was Matt Hagen, who appeared in Detective Comics number 298 in 1961. This one had a completely different look and gimmick than the first Clayface. Really, the only thing they shared was their name. Clayface 2, however, found steadier work than his predecessor, appearing five more times just in the 1960s, in Detective Comics 304 and 312, Batman 159, and World's Finest 140 and 144. In the 70s, he appeared in Action Comics 443 and Detective Comics 478. In the 80s, he showed up again in World's Finest and Detective Comics before dying in the last issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Death didn't stop him from appearing in Batman 400 and the aforementioned Mudpack storyline, though. Clayface 2 was nominally the Clayface of Batman the Animated Series, in that the character in that show was named Matt Hagen, but as we'll see, other than having the name and a muddy, inhuman appearance, this Clayface was really nothing like the one in the cartoons that people love. So, any other appearances or specific memories of Clayface 2 before moving on? Other than he was on the 70s Batman cartoon, like I said, that's it. Yeah, that's right, I forgot to mention that one. All right, then let us go to the story of Clayface 2. The tragic, though amusing, history of Clayface 2 is written by Dan Raspler, penciled by Bernie Moreau, inked by Dennis Rodier, lettered by Albert de Guzman, and colored by Helen Vesic. Career criminal Matt Hagen, nicknamed Lucky, reads a newspaper article about a famous deep-sea diver who discovered a fortune in sunken treasure. Lucky Matt Hagen thought that sounded like an easy way to get rich. He goes to the Gotham Library to research boats and diving in a book called Pillaging Sunken Pirate Ships for Fun and Profit. Then he murders a boatman and takes his vessel out to sea. After two days, and with hardly any experience diving, Lucky Matt discovers the wreckage of the Spanish galleon Bellina Hermosa. He puts on scuba gear and starts exploring the wrecked ship. He finds a treasure chest that he assumes will be filled with gold, 
but it's actually filled with small urns and a note that says, Cuidado las urnas son peligrosas, which roughly translates to something like, Beware the urns are dangerous. Matt either doesn't understand Spanish or doesn't take the warning seriously. Angry at the lack of treasure, he opens one of the urns, only to have a mysterious, viscous, oil-like liquid cover his body. The liquid makes him sick, and he panics, swimming straight up to his boat. But he rams his head directly into a rocky overhang above the galleon, smashing his head like a pumpkin three days after Halloween. His body floats back down to the sunken ship, but he doesn't die. Lucky Matt feels around the top of his neck and shoulders to find nothing but a wad of mud where his head should be. He has no eyes nor brain, yet he still retains consciousness. He blindly swims back to the stolen motorboat. When he gets there, he wishes he had a head and eyes to see what a mess's head looks like. With that wish, the muddy clay on his neck forms the shape of a head, though not a pleasant one. It's enough for Matt to glimpse himself in the mirror. His whole body is a barely humanoid glob of mud, and Matt has a hard time believing any chicks would want to hang out with him looking like that. Looking like a mud monster with no prospects for money and or sex, Matt Hagen decides to end his joke of a life and shoots himself in the head. Except bullets don't hurt mud, and the shot meant to blow his head off has no deadly effect on him. This inspires Matt to give his life another chance especially if he's bulletproof, a quality that should come in handy for a career criminal. He also finds that with concentration, he can shape his mud form into his old human body. He goes back to Gotham and robs a bank. The cops chase him and open fire. The bullets puncture his body, but only mud leaks out of the bullet holes. Lucky Matt escapes to steal again, but his face is plastered all over the news, so the next time he tries to rob a bank, he does it in his muddy clay form. This, however, has the adverse effect of terrifying everyone at the bank, and the tellers are too scared to fill his bag with money. So Matt runs from the bank and the cops and ducks around a corner. When Batman and the police close in on him, Matt changes his form to resemble an old white-haired lady. The disguise works. Neither Batman nor the cops suspect him at first, but Batman eventually finds the trail of mud that Matt is leaving behind. Batman confronts the clay monster, but he has no idea how to fight him. Matt runs from the Batman, hiding in the basement of a ceramics shop. When Batman arrives, Matt hides inside one of the kilns. The fire bakes Matt, so that by the time Batman and Commissioner Gordon find him, he's as solid as a clay pot. This is not the end of the man who would be Clayface 2, however. When the paddy wagon hits a pothole in the street, the solid Clayface falls over and shatters. This reveals that normal human Matt Hagen is alive. The clay around him was only a hardened shell. No longer being Clayface or having any powers, Matt Hagen is released from jail. He immediately goes back to the sunken urns and douses himself again with more of the mysterious oil. He becomes Clayface again and returns to stealing. When confronted by Batman, he runs into the street and is flattened by a city bus. The next time he gets the powers, he runs afoul of Batman again, but this time is flattened by a falling piano. Matt begins to suspect that crime isn't really for him, that maybe he'd be better off getting a real job. That realization may have come too late, however, as the next time we see him is during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. He douses himself with a liquid to become Clayface again, only to be killed by one of the Anti-Monitor's Shadow Demons. This time, Matt Hagen would not be coming back. 
but sometime later, the original Clayface, Basil Carlo, finds the puddle of mud where Matt Hagen died and collects the leftover clay. He says the remains of Matt Hagen will play a part in Carlo's evil master plan. And that story would be told in Detective Comics 604 through 607, the mud pack story that we've already mentioned several times. And that is the story of Clayface 2. So, Kyle, what did you think? Uh, what? <laughs> uh, uh, just what an eclectic collection of stories here. Uh, total drastic uh, tonal shift uh, from the last one here. We, the last one we have what was going for a, a dark, kind of grim and gritty, pulpy feel. And this one is so... It's like a, an underground late 70s, early 80s comic. The art is... Uh, goofy and very cartoony yeah all i could think of is uh you know if they're kind of going for a goofier cartoony approach to this i wish they would have got joe staten god this is kyle's uh hindsight is uh 2020 <laughs> insight podcast here but <laughs> um it was really weird reading these stories back to back um you know you have him diving down and getting uh exposed to the you know the the ooze and the ocean floor bottom and essentially melting his head as he's on his way back up to his ship and uh, mm-hmm. just got a, a mud there sitting in between his shoulders and then uh, you know he thinks to himself uh, hmm I wonder what uh, the chicks will think of my my new look or whatever and it's kind of like what and then <laughs> then you get a, a suicide joke here and it's just yeah this one is so drastically different than uh, than the first one it's just uh, Which... a lot to take <laughs> And, and uh, I notice you're not saying it's better. You're not saying you like no, the story. You just keep on saying, wow, it's different. It's, uh, <laughs> I'll have what he's having, I guess. I, man, I don't, uh, All right, you, you keep thinking about it, Kyle. Chris, what did you think? You know, even though this one's very irreverent, it's obviously kind of like the, the rogues you covered recently in the Secret Origins Flash Rose issue. It's obviously at DC at this time, they were like, okay, the old. The old crazy Silver Age characters, they're jokes. You know, I mean, I, I think that's the way they were. A lot of the creators were looking at them. Let's have some fun with these guys. Obviously, in just a few short years, the animated series creators would prove that no, Clayface can be a legitimately scary and honestly touching character if done properly. But at this point, they didn't care. They just wanted to have insane amount of fun with these somewhat, somewhat goofy characters or what they thought were goofy. And they did. I, I actually kind of like this this one just because it does have such a just an out there feel. And I think the artwork's actually I like it. It's definitely not what you used to seeing in a DC book, but you can follow it. Unlike the previous story, the storytelling's done well, and and just the panel where you know his head changes and you get that spurb sound effect. It's like his <laughs> his eyes are floating out of his head. I mean, into the into the hole in the pee, yeah. you know? So, I mean, it's just, and, and then like Kyle said, the, the suicide thing, it, this is like really black humor for a DC comic in the eighties. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and he puts himself in the kiln and I am so surprised that the panel of Batman sniffing the clay, which looks like who <laughs> let's face it. That's not a meme. I'm surprised that's not a meme. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. That, uh, it may uh, be tomorrow. You know, we don't know. That's a great two panel one. You got him taking a whiff and you then go to the one of him slapping Robin. Batman, are you smelling poop? <laughs> it's clay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm there with you guys. I mean, I, I wrote up my synopsis for this and then I started to write notes 
and I couldn't think of any notes to put for this. I was like, I don't... This story boggles my mind, because I'm like, yes, it's obviously better than the last one. It's The story is coherent. I can follow the action. I know what's going on. At the same time, it's there's so much weirdness and silliness to this, but it's not it's not treated like it's silly. There are horrific elements of this story, like you know when he he basically smashes his own head in, and then just kind of like feels it around, like what I need to find a mirror because what does this look like? And and we spend a lot of time with him, you know, in the aftermath, just figuring out these powers, which. I like that. I mean, that that seems like yeah. If you if you suddenly become this sort of clay monster, we should spend a lot of time figuring out how this is affecting him psychologically, how it's affecting him physiologically. But the story is only like eleven pages, so we can't spend four pages on this. And one page is just him with, uh, you know, holding a gun to his head and and figuring out like after he shot it, he's like, well, I guess I can use this for crime. So. The yeah, the pacing. It felt like by the time we get Batman, we've got three really quick scenarios of Batman chasing him and him dying or getting like captured or something like that. And so yeah, the pacing was all over the place with this one, and it was and it ends with him like with the this panel of the of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which looks like it could be a parade because <laughs> looks like uh, taken from the movie They're Back. Dinosaurs come back. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, you've also like the red sky looks pink. There's lightning. There's the shadow things. There's just like these spots. It looks like confetti and like streamers flying. Like this is like, is it Crisis or is it New Year's or Mardi Gras? What's going on in this page? <laughs> Reminds me of the uh, the Family Guy cutaway where they're uh, selling the wiggly arm things at closeout prices. <laughs> but. Uh, and then the last page, we have a different version of Basil Carlo's Clayface. That last panel, well, until until we get to the Tom Grummet art later, right. which is awesome. Thus far, that is the single greatest panel oh, yeah, in the comic, it's... that last panel of the second story. And it's pretty consistent with the way that uh, Norm Brayfogle draws Basil Carlo in the mud pack. Uh-huh. Uh, so that, that helps, too. You know, finally, oh, well, let's have this match the event we're doing. <laughs> right, yeah, I definitely feel like there was some communication this time around. There are times when the jokes work, like right away when he's uh, in the first page, like when he's reading the book, pillaging sunken pirate ships for fun and profit. Like, <laughs> I like that because I'm, I want to live in the world where that's an actual book you can check out of the library. That sounds like a 70s comic book ad in the uh, collage ads. <laughs> yeah. Right next, right next to the sea monkeys and the uh, Joe Weider body building. Yeah, you can order mm. that, yeah. Did you guys catch that the origin's actually different? I mean, because in the original story, Matt Hagen finds a pool, a radioactive pool, in a grotto. But in here, it's like in little jars, which is, that's kind of an odd change to make. You know, it's like that didn't really change anything, but it it was just strange. You know, it, it's like, I, I don't know what made him change that. It, you could have still had all the humor and, you know, had him just come up out of the grotto, you know, changed and smashed his head or something. It was just... It was odd. Yeah, I, and it, I knew that, but I've never read the first appearance. Like, what was Matt Hagen? Was he a career criminal in the original, or was he like I, I don't know? Like, who? What was his character like in that first appearance? I mean, he was not. You know, he of course he wasn't portrayed as a joke here. You know, I mean right, that. Right, you yeah, know, yeah, no, yeah. nobody had that much dimension back in the Silver Age, right? But he, he uh, if if I remember right, it's been a while since I read all the way through it, but. I think he was kind of a, you know, a, a adventurer type, man of fortune type character. And uh, he, I think he had heard of some kind of treasure 
a sunken, you know, galleon or something. And, and he had went looking for it and he found this underground grotto and this glowing pool and, and he slipped in it and then he found out that he could, you know, change his shape of course he took to it right away because you know silver age comic he didn't feel despondent over it he figured out pretty quick you know what he could do with it and uh and uh, you know he was actually a pretty formidable foe i mean they actually had him even team up with the joker in one of his first appearances so i mean you know he was not you know this is this is a revisionist look back at the character because he he was not intended to be a joke you know so even in the back matter, in the letters column, when Mark Wade is talking about the secrets of the story, he says, let's face it, Clayface 2 was goofy. I'm like, really? That's okay. I mean, that might be true, but I kind of don't want to hear you say that. I'd rather have you acknowledge that you can do a serious thing with this character because, like you said, two years after this, Bruce Tim and his crew will do something serious with this promise. And, yeah. Kyle, you mentioned how Clayface was sort of like obsessed with, you know, what are the chicks going to think when they see me? I did like that joke. That one worked for me. I was kind of, that seemed like a very nice bit of characterization to establish exactly who this guy is and what his priorities are. But Oh, yeah. I, I love the other line he has uh, when uh, Batman figures out that uh, he's the old lady in disguise there and uh, he's, oh, I'm up a creep. <laughs> Time for some fast thinking. <laughs> You'll never take me alive, cheap creep. <laughs> Just shoot mud at him. That's the fast thinking. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> covers blown. But uh, yeah, uh, Dan. Stay Rasper cool. Stay was, cool. Play it cool. Dan Rasper was the writer on this, and maybe I'm way off base. This uh, he wasn't the one that wrote the three part story. Of, what was it Detective Five Ninety Eight through Six Hundred? Those were all eighty page giants. So it'd been I'm right Sam before. Ham. Right before that was Sam Ham. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that okay. was the movie that wrote that trilogy. Okay. Yeah. What uh, had Dan Rasper ever touched Batman before this? Then wasn't he an editor? I thought he was an editor at DC. I, uh, looking at Mike's Amazing World, this is his first credit as a writer. After that, he did Young Heroes in Love. Looks like was his big thing. He did some other Batman stories, like a Legends of the Dark Knight issue later on, but it looks like he started as an editor in 1989 around the same time. He was doing Firestorm and Suicide Squad later on. This must have been one of his very first works for DC. Hmm, that's crazy. But, I mean, so, yeah, he, I mean, he continued to be an editor at DC, like, throughout the 90s. And, so that would have been when Ostrander was writing Firestorm and Suicide Squad. He was the editor then? Uh, mm. Yeah, because it okay. looked like he was taking over only, like, the last 10 issues of Firestorm. And okay. then he was taking over, he was editing Suicide Squad starting with issue 31. Okay. Anyway. If you want a little insight into the old Matt Hagen, I've got the original story here from Batman in the 60s. And the panel where it shows him like diving, it, it's similar to what we get in this one. He says, only chumps work at jobs, not me. One of these days I'll find a sunken frigate loaded with treasure. I'll be rich. So there you go. That's as much characterization as Matt Hagen gets in the. Yeah. And he, then he finds the pool, and there you go. But so he 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 didn't want to work either. The the Silver Age version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so that that is at least in keeping with his character. He was, you know, out for getting rich quick, but a little bit more adventurous and mercenary than than this character. But mm-hmm. so it's hard to judge this one because based on this story, this is a stupid clay face that I don't really care that much about. But, like I said at the beginning, the name Matt Hagen is uh, 
the name that we I sort of associate with Clayface now because of the animated series and the fact that he is this mucky monster that can change his form and everything. The visual of Clayface from the animated series and the name of Matt Hagen were taken from this one. So that makes me want to like this character a little bit more, but based on this story, I really don't. <laughs> I, I don't have any like sympathy for him. He is kind of too stupid to live I feel like by the end of the story so this reads like Batman meets American Splendor or something you know it really does <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right Kyle any final thoughts on this one a drastic tonal shift from the first one but uh, definitely a much more enjoyable story yeah. and we'll get yet another tonal shift for the third Clayface story and we will cover that one in just a minute but for now one more promo break. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, Jeez. Well, uh, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed. No change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. That thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Clayface, Preston Payne was created in 1978 by writer Len Wein and artist Marshall Rogers for a two-part story in Detective Comics 478 and 479. He next appeared in the first story in Batman Annual Number 11, written by Alan Moore with art by George Freeman. After that, he had cameo appearances in Swamp Thing 66 and Secret Origins 23. That was the Floronic Man story. After this issue and the Mudpack storyline, Preston Payne fathered Clayface 5 with Lady Clay, and like I said after that, his Clayface histories are all kind of messed up and intertwined. So, Chris, 
I know how much you love Marshall Rogers, and I gotta figure that played a part in your decision to want to cover this version of Clayface. So what did you think of those early stories? Oh, yeah, those are great. I think I came across those probably uh, probably before the Batman movie came out, so probably like 88 or something like that. I've, I've got all the Marshall Rogers issues. And uh, there's actually a little – he appears in a cameo in the issue before his official first appearance. You just see – you know, see the hooded figure, and I think he actually melts somebody. Uh, but yeah, it was. You know, I think he's uh, he's got a great design, and uh, if you think about it, he's kind of got a similar. There's some similar uh, looks going on there with the calculator from uh, <laughs> from around that same era, and I know Marshall Rogers worked on that character. I'm not sure he designed him or not. I can't remember, I, but uh, I think he maybe did. Yeah. I th- think so because I think. Oh gosh. I covered he did stories. the final story, I know. He, he did. I covered those issues on my uh, on old Flowers and Fishnets blog. Because I don't remember if he did every issue. I don't think he did every chapter, but maybe... Because the Calculator Saga started off in backup strips. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was only the last chapter that became the first full story. And I think maybe that was the first time Marshall Rogers drew the full story. Like the yeah. full Batman story. So. But, but I think he did draw. I think now that I'm thinking through this, I think you're right. I think he drew maybe like the first chapter. So he designed the calculator, mm-hmm. and and then there's some there's some costume elements that are similar there. That there's a similar aesthetic going on between the two. But I think Clayface Three's got a cooler look. <laughs> I also, if you take the cloak, like the hooded cape, away from him, I've also always found sort of similarities between this costume and the superpowers Mister Freeze. Yes. yes, definitely. That's what and, I was thinking. And I mean, they're they're not quite the same. They're clearly like different model, but maybe it's just the dome head, something along those lines that just kind of reminds me. And and they're almost like hot and cold opposites. So there's a, a weird sort of mm-hmm. connection there. But so. yep. All right, Chris, would you tell our listeners the origin of Clayface Three? I will be glad to. A stormy night at Arkham Asylum. Inside, a rookie security guard gets the grand tour from a veteran coworker. The newbie witnesses firsthand the psychosis of the Mad Hatter, Two-Face, and the Joker. Nate, the veteran, saves what he considers the craziest for last. His name is Clayface Three, And that's the name of our story. The credit box reads, A tale twice told by Lynn Wein, writer-co-creator, Tom Grummet, penciler, Gary Martin, inker, Janice Chang, letterer, Helen Vesic, colorist, Mark Wade, editor. With thanks to co-creator Marshall Rogers, for the visual inspiration. Through the eye slot in the thick metal door, the two observe the hideous man in the armored suit in a very mundane scene, seated in a soft armchair and staring at a television set. Beside him sits a female mannequin. This is Clayface's wife, quote-unquote, Helena. Clayface takes the remote from Helena's plastic hand, chastising her for watching too many dating game reruns. Changing the channels, he is delighted to find one of his favorite programs, Notorious, hosted by Jack Ryder. He is even more excited when he learns this episode's subject is none other than himself. Ryder recaps how Clayface 3 first appeared at the Gotham branch of Star Labs, murdering a security guard by melting his body into a pool of protoplasmic slime. Despite the grisly scene, the murderer scrawled, Forgive me, on a nearby wall. From there, Clayface encountered the Batman several times, until the Cape Crusader apprehended him in one of Gotham's department stores. Ryder concludes that little is known about Clayface's identity and origins, 
and then switches the program's focus to a real supervillain, the Kite Man. Clayface is furious, screaming at the television that his life is an open book. Once more, he recounts his tragic backstory to Helena. How as a young boy named Preston Payne, he suffered from the rare disease acromegaly, which distorted his body and facial features. Shunned by his classmates, he found solace in his books and used his vast intellect to become a scientist at Gotham Star Labs. Still, despite his genius, he was shunned again by his peers due to his appearance. When the despair became too great, he visited the nation's best plastic surgeons, which all told him the same thing. They couldn't help him. Near suicide, a brooding Payne noticed a newspaper headline, Batman Nabs Clayface. Payne had heard of Clayface too, a.k.a. Matt Hagen, and his ability to change his shape at will, like putty. Perhaps, just perhaps, he could pass on that secret to Payne. Preston used his star connections to visit Hagen in prison. Hagen refused to share the secret of his Clayface powers, but he did agree to donate a blood sample to Payne in exchange for a good word with the parole board. Payne made good on his promise, and although Hagen did not get that parole, Payne got his blood. Payne worked feverishly to isolate the unique ingredient in Hagen's blood that gave him his incredible powers. Eventually, he found it, and like hundreds of comic book scientists before him, he experimented on himself, injecting himself with the serum. Liquid fire burned through his veins, and Payne passed out. When he came to, he discovered his skin was malleable, like putty. He reshaped his face into a handsome visage and dressed to the nines, set out on the town. With a gorgeous lady on his arm, Payne proudly strode the streets of Gotham, but in Gotham Park, two passers-by ran from them in fear. When Preston's date looked up at him, she screamed, Your face! What happened to your face? The flesh of Payne's face now ran like melted wax, or more accurately, flowing clay. Instinctively, he reached for his shrieking date, and felt a fire flow from his hand into her arm. The hysterical woman began to smoke and melt until there was nothing left but her clothes and a pool of liquid flesh. When he realized what he had done, all the anguish Payne had ever suffered came forth in one agonizing scream. Payne knew that whatever horror the extract had wrought, its effects were contagious. He returned to his lab and created an exoskeleton suit to house his melting body and contain the burning contagion. But it wasn't enough. At times the pain grew too much for him to bear, and he found the only way to ease that pain was to release it by passing it on to another, which, of course, left them a pile of steaming goo. Payne tells Helena the doctors at Arkham had since discovered a way to control his fevers, but it doesn't excuse his past. He doesn't understand why Ryder and his crew couldn't get all of that right. But then, his rage passes. How much does the truth really matter on television, he asks. He changes the channel. Outside the heavy metal door, the two guards discuss what they've just witnessed. The rookie asks if he's always like that, which his superior confirms. But what about the TV set, the young man asks. Beats me. All day long he just sits there, playing with the remote control, staring at the blank screen like there was really something on. My first question after the story, how many shows does Jack Ryder have? (laughs) This this might be a serious question that I want to ask Dr. Ange. Because it feels like he's got several talk shows, and either the writers just keep making up new ones, or he's constantly being fired and getting assigned new shows on different channels. I think either way works, knowing Jack Ryder from what we've seen in, in the comics, especially this time, like when he's in Justice League, like Shaq's covering over at the Blahaha podcast, uh-huh. that he's obviously a, a jerk. 
so, uh, you know, the fact that he might be getting fired and hopping to other networks and other shows, then, yeah, you know, so, and, you know, he's he can have as many shows as he wants inside, inside Preston's head, so. <laughs> <laughs> True, good point. Yeah, actually, since it wasn't real, maybe Preston Payne just made up that show title, Notorious. Mm-hmm. All right, Kyle, what were your thoughts on this story? Well, starting with the art, I absolutely love it. I'm a huge Tom Drummond fan. His work on Superman and the 90s Superboy series with uh, Carl Kiesel is just amazing. Some of my all-time favorite comics. So it's great to see some uh, early work, too, and just see how dynamic and uh, just straightforward, classic, stylized it was then. And then see that refined as it was in the 90s. But uh, And that, that opening splash page that the story starts off with, it's just such an amazing art page there you know you got some popcorn laying on the floor the shadows are perfect you got the very stiff uh doll like face on the the doll there you can tell she's a doll and uh the shadows on the the door behind as the you know the guards kind of peep in through the window it's just a very well composed page and uh definitely more to the aesthetic i like out of my batman comics than the uh what we saw in the first two the story is also unique that we get to see grummet uh draw other batman villains gets a shot at uh a Two-Face and the Joker and Mad Hatter there. Uh, yeah. Just some great classic storytelling with the art. Uh, it's definitely my favorite, uh, I think, probably story-wise as well. I mean, you got Len Wein, the co-creator of the character, coming back revisiting it. You know, one of the all-time great Batman writers and all-time great comic book writer and editors. So definitely my, my favorite uh, favorite story uh, of the three. It's, you know, when we were giving out uh, who's going to split up the episode, it's been a, such a long time since I read it. I'm kind of pissed at myself for letting uh, Chris claim this one and getting <laughs> stuck with uh, Giffen's shitty artwork in the first one. <laughs> I remembered, so I'm like, I'm not doing the Giffen one. <laughs> I, I was going to say, if Chris didn't pick this one, if you got this one, then I would have been stuck with the Giffen one. Yeah, I, I love this one. And this one, I, I think, is uh, much more in line with uh, the best story or most suitable story for what this comic was supposed to be and kind of a, a opening or, or zero issue uh, leading into that, that mud pack storyline. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the art, the fact that it's sort of solid, conventional superhero type of artwork that we would find is kind of a breath of fresh air for this, the last story in it. But it goes beyond that because it's Tom Grummet who is really, really good. Uh, and I don't, Tom Grummet never did any like really prolonged work with Batman, did he? I uh, think, Robin. yeah, just the oh, Robin would have been yeah, his biggest, longest run in this universe for sure, or corner of the DC universe. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, this is good. I, uh, I'm i a fan of Tom Grummet, and this is certainly so much better than what we've seen so far in this issue. And it's it's great because this is a this is a type of character that you need this type of art for just because of the sophistication of the story with what Preston Payne looked like as a child with the, uh, what are they called? The hyper pituitarianism mm-hmm. and the, the whole, like the detail on the costume. Yeah. I, I can't see either of the other artists that have been on this issue so far doing this story. Chris, what did you think? Oh yeah. I think this is fantastic. Um, if you have those detective issues besides the framing sequence, this is almost verbatim of uh, those stories. I mean, when, when they say it's a twice told tale, yeah. uh, he ain't kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the dialogue, um, some of the narration is even word for word. Um, it's basically just, uh, Rummet, uh, reinterpreting the same, almost the same script, uh, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the, the framing sequence gives it enough of a, of a different uh, hook and uh, you know you get that you know this this guy's arguing with the mannequin right away mm. uh, <laughs> i mean let's not forget that you know i mean that's 
And they established the mannequin from the very first story. Well, she was a wax figure in the first story because he was in in old wax works. And then he found a mannequin that he thought was Helena in that Batman annual number 11, which was that story was edited by Lynn Wein. So that must have been a leftover from his days of editing the Batman comics, even though this came out after Denny O'Neill was the editor. So, you know, he was still connected to the character in that story as the editor. And uh, one thing I like about Preston Payne is he's got a very, he's got, he could almost be a Marvel superhero, Uh, his his origin, you know, I mean, maybe if he didn't like kill people or if he like didn't kill innocent people, you know, you could almost see him as a Marvel anti-hero or something because he's got a very Marvel-like origin about him. And, uh, you know, in, in the hyperpaturitarianism or acromegaly that he has, that's a real thing. And, uh, you know, when I was getting ready to do my notes for this issue, I kind of looked up. I knew Rondo Hatton from the old horror movies. They make up a guy to look like him in The Rocketeer that he's fighting on the blimp yep. in the movie The Rocketeer. Uh, yep, but, the, but he's an actual real actor. Uh, that acromegaly is actually, you know, there's some other people that suffered from it. You had uh, Richard Keel mm-hmm. played Jaws. I was thinking of uh, I couldn't think of the name, but yeah, I knew. Yeah, and, and and what really freaked me out is motivational speaker Anthony Robbins apparently has it. So it's basically like it can, you know, it makes your like lower jaw jut out and elongate. And it's not just, you know, it's there's different cases of it, but I, I had no idea. So, so, you know, they took a real world medical issue. And then, you know, made it into this. It's it's really tragic. You feel for the guy. I mean, he obviously doesn't want to kill anybody, but he just completely snapped the first time he killed someone, obviously. And Grummet really conveys that. And his, I hate to say it as much as I'm a fan of Marshall Rogers, but the actual picture of his melting face when you first see it, it's more horrific than what Rogers did. And I think that's to Kyle's point, having that traditional superhero style artist, when it gets horrific, it's nasty horrific. You know, and uh, it's it's unsettling because, you know, everything was clean and pristine in a Bronze Age kind of way. And then, ugh, you know, <laughs> so uh, he, he really brings the horror element, you know, in the panel where he's screaming and pain. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, he could he's a very interesting character that I think they could have done a lot more with, you know, over the years. I'm actually kind of surprised it took him that long to bring him back after Ween and Roger set him up so well. Yeah, I- each one of these clay faces, if we look at the three, they're all very different types of characters and different types of villains. They play to different tropes. Going back, Basil Carlo was the slasher, the Jack the Ripper type. Matt Hagen was the monster, you know, the sort of shape-changing, but sort of, you know, just kind of, kind of monster. Preston Payne has a bit of that mad scientist-turned-freak. It seems like he was a good guy who could have had a noble, if not heroic, future ahead of him. But for this, you know, this accident, his his hubris, his desperation, almost sort of like a Kirk Connors type of thing, his desperation to fix a problem with his physicality that he felt like kept him from the rest of humanity in trying to fix that problem, he exacerbated it and made it even worse, and that put him on this villainous cycle. I had a few other, like, kind of, like, minor notes. Uh, first, shout-out to Kite Man in the story. Always love Kite Man references. <laughs> uh, the second, he mentions that he graduated from Hudson University. I want to know if somewhere out there if there could ever be a story that connects Preston Payne to Martin Stein. I think that would be funny. Ooh. Actually, I well, think this Clayface would be an interesting villain for Firestorm. Oh, agreed. And... Uh, 
something else. I it's on. I mean, these pages aren't numbered, but it's on page six. It's the page that begins with uh, all of the plastic surgeons basically saying there's nothing they can do for Preston. Does anybody else have the word secret origins written at the top of the page? Yep. Yes. Doesn't that seem like the kind of thing like on a top of the original art page, the original art page before it's scanned in and everything, how they have the, the book number, the issue number, the artist and the right, like everything, how they have those on those art prints. And then they're usually either erased or they're taken off when the pages are scanned. Yep. Yep. Usually there's like a, you know, it's on a blue line. There's a, you know, it says up top who the the issue, the artist. And yeah. So secret origins, they, somebody didn't erase it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was. So I just got to that. and I was like, Hmm. Did I write that? Did a previous owner write that? I was like, no, I know it exactly what that is. So yeah, somebody, somebody at the printing or transfer office messed that one up. And Mark Wade didn't catch it. I'll tell you what, going back to the, the ape issue we covered, he's slacking a bit on his editing duties, I think, here on this one. <laughs> well, and you know what? Because he's no longer crediting himself as boy editor, so he should know better. Yep. <laughs> uh, a question that kind of came to me as I was reading this was, why does Clayface 3 have to narrate the story to his mannequin wife, girlfriend, lover? If, uh, if it, well, in his mind, if she knows the story, like it felt like they, they were setting it up so that the story would be told by Jack Ryder through the news program. And I was like, okay, that's a great device to retell the origin. But then that stops after page three, and... Preston Payne goes on to narrate itself. And I was like, why didn't they maintain the news version of the story? And then I realized that's kind of the entire setup for the next issue in the series that I'll be talking about next week with the Secret Origins special. So did any of you think about that or was that just me or? Well, I, I just I remembered it that it was all in his head. So I just assume to show that he gets so angry about the fact that they didn't get his story right and he just has to. To tell her again, it just it's another way to show just how this guy's completely gone. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even think that the, the guards are really wrong because the Joker, the Mad Hatter, and Two-Face, they're crazy, okay? But they can function in a certain way. They can interact with other people and right. make semi-rational decisions or demented, but they can make rational decisions rational to themselves. He's not even rational to himself. So, I mean, you know, he's he's watching a blank TV. He's imagining that he's watching this program about himself and the guy didn't even get it right. I mean, <laughs> that's and he's telling it to his mannequin girlfriend. I mean, this is that's true. That, poor, there are levels of crazy. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's like seven layer salad crazy. You know, I mean, it's it's Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just talk it up to he's a bit of a Looney Tune, and my wife is constantly telling me that I'm telling her the same story I've told her 50 times already. So, <laughs> Plus, I've been watching a lot of Transformers lately, so I just think his uh, wax girlfriend here is kind of like Grimlock, and he's kind of like Cup, and she's going, Tell Grimlock about petrol rabbits again. <laughs> I'll give you petrol rabbits. All right. <laughs> 
it's nice to see that him and uh, Helena made up from uh, the Batman annual number 11 because at the end of the story, he's like, she can't live forever. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read that one, but he, he thinks she's cheated on him with Batman in that story. Yeah. Uh, so they've oh, reconciled. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they've reconciled since that story. <laughs> but the next time we see him in the Mud Pack storyline that picks up after this, they're having problems, and he feels like they're irreconcilable differences. And that's what leads him out of his stable relationship with a mannequin into the wanton arms of Lady Clayface. And that's right. That's what begets Cassius Pain or Cassius Clay Pain. Uh, <laughs> that's the pain. <laughs> so did uh, Cassius Clay Payne then ever fight like a Ernie Terrell analog? <laughs> he fought Superman <laughs> in a tabloid book. No. <laughs> Kyle, any final thoughts on Clayface three in this story? Thank God for this story because this really saved this issue from being a real. Uh, Real turd ball. <laughs> Mud ball. Yeah, no, I, I love this third story. It's been years since I've, I've read this issue, so uh, I remembered uh, liking it quite a bit, and that's definitely got to be because of this story and not the first two. I think they, they could have had something big with the first issue if they wouldn't have got this Keith Giffen. Again, I, I'm still going to tout the either uh, Howard Chaykin from this time period doing that story or, like I said, the... If I could dream how amazing uh, it would have been to have the story retold in you know a full twenty pages by Darwin Cook, but mm-hmm. the the middle story, it's it's entertaining. Uh, definitely not as bad as the first one, but definitely a, a little off the beaten path of what I normally go to for Batman comics. But overall, a, a pretty enjoyable issue. Thanks in part a lot to that third final story. I'm done rambling now. <laughs> Chris, what do you think? I'm, I'm with Kyle. This kind of saved the issue, even though I kind of like the uh, Matt Hagen one just for its quirkiness. But, uh, you know, it is a, it is symptomatic of the DC of the time. You've got the the whole issue is really because you've got uh, – it was an interesting time because I think you've got that uh, – if it's not Frank Miller, it, it is in that same vein, this uh, artistic experimentation going on with the Giffen story. Uh, storytelling be damned. I want to, you know, be avant-garde and, you know, spot blacks and, and use a six panel grid and, you know, and then you've got the, the kind of the influence of the independent comics in the second story. And then you've got a straight up, you know, could have come straight from the bronze age story at the end. And I mean, the story came from the bronze age and the artwork is very bronze age. So uh, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a time capsule of uh, of a lot of the uh, what was going on in comics at the time, not just at DC Comics, which is interesting because you know you get that kind of indie feel yeah. going on. But uh, yeah, I think you know as far as tying into the Mud Pack, really, I think <laughs> only the last story really works um, because you know I mean Bray Fogel's art was uh, not as traditional as uh, Grummet's. But, uh, you know, it's still very dynamic superhero-type artwork. So. And you can follow it, which is a plus. Yes, yes, and it's yeah. obviously gorgeous. And I'm really I, – I meant to bring this up earlier. Why didn't they just have him do this cover? That's a good question. <laughs> they let him do those posters inside those 
the first and last issue of that series, which that yeah. there's a poster of Batman and then one of the Batcave yeah. that are painted. It's like you know, which I love those, and I, these, I had them hanging up on my wall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so so I had I had I think I bought two copies of each of those so I could take the poster out and hang it up. But uh, I'd like to have seen his take on the cover of this. It kind of would have brought it all back around together, you know. Right. No, I definitely agree. I mean, I'm I'm with you guys. Certainly, the third story is the best by a pretty wide margin. I do think they get progressively better from really, really rocky, difficult to read, to quirky, not exactly what I want when I'm looking at this comic, to a solid, great effort of retelling a, a classic story. So I think the third story was worth the cover price of the book. But again, I come to this idea where I, I like the Preston Payne character so much. I love the story. I love his visual look. I love the mushy like face underneath the, the helmet. I love the fact that when he touches people with bare hands, he melts them into wax. Is there another name we could give this character? Because I, I want to have a, a sort of mushy Matt Hagen clay face and the Basil Carlo Jack the Ripper type and this Preston Payne burner type of character. I want to have them... I don't know, this is just my brain. My brain like doesn't want them to all be clay faces because I want them to, to be able to coexist at the same time and to have stories that are separate from each other. And maybe that's me. Maybe this is just my weird problem that I need to deal with. But I feel like some of these characters are clay faced just because they had that name and they could be. But... Call Man Thing Jr., Man Thing Jr. He's got the the burning touch, and he was a he former scientist. Man Thing Jr. Whatever knows fear burns at the hands, burns at the touch of Preston Payne. There you go. It could just be Doctor Payne. That's yeah, stupid, but whatever. Major Payne. Major Payne. God, I love that movie. So, okay, guys, thank you very much for covering this story with me. What are some other great Clayface stories? I mean, I think we've mentioned it a number of times because this issue was a tie-in to it, but the Mudpack Saga from Detective Comics 604 through 607. I actually wish DC would collect those four issues and throw this issue of Secret Origins in along with it. I think that would be a great little trade paperback. Maybe, I agree. Maybe throw in the Alan Moore story from the Secret Origins, or not the Secret, from the Batman Annual that was around the same time. Yeah. I think it would be easy to collect these and put them out as a Clayface trade paperback. That would be cool. Yep. But, they did get reprinted, I believe, last August, last September, in the uh, Legends of the Dark Knight, Norm Brayfogle hardcover. Yeah. I hope that continues. I hope they publish another volume of that, too. So. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, other good Clayface appearances that you guys would recommend? Uh, I've got to go with the Marshall Rogers. I mean, they usually keep that in print. That uh, I think it's usually included. Isn't it usually included with the the Steve Englehart run in the trade paperbacks? I think it is. Uh, the, I know it was used to be called Strange Apparitions, and then they renamed it something else. I I've never bought the trades because I got all the original issues, and I. I just love them so much. I get my originals out and read them. So well, they also they released a hardcover called Legends of the Dark Knight, Marshall Rogers. That was his. That's stuff. what I was wondering. Yeah, the, right. in that the, they are in that. That's because that's that. I think that's actually how I first read them. Yeah, that's how oh, I first okay. read those stories. Okay, go get those. <laughs> and then obviously his appearances on Batman the Animated Series, things like that. Chris, do you remember? Or Ryan too. I just I know Chris is uh, just loves Batman the animated series so much. Did the Batman Adventures comic book did that feature that Clayface in those at all? Yeah, they've, uh, they've put out the 
three or four volumes of that. I think there's four in now. trade now. Yeah. I know there's a cover. There's a cover that's popping in my head early on in the run where there's this big blonde guy on the cover and Batman's like on the ground and some woman's holding onto his arm and I think he's casting the shadow of Clayface. Uh, so yeah, he's definitely in that series pretty early on. And then the uh, the Holiday Nights uh, story uh, with Batgirl, that was originally in the Batman Adventures Holiday Special. Uh, me and Cindy covered that on a Supermates. Uh, that's a great little Clayface story. It's it's a Batgirl story, really, but Clayface is great in it because, you know, she, he's got the little – he's made little kids off of him, and they're like, you know, shoplifting <laughs> in the mall. And, and, you know, they all kind of come back together and make Clayface, and it's like Batgirl, Bullock, and Montoya – facing Clayface in the middle of this Christmas scene mall. So it's, that's a, in the comic and the, which is drawn by Bruce Tim and the, uh, the animated series uh, episode that that's a great little Clayface story. And then one other that I would recommend, as I said before, uh, the video game, Batman Arkham city, you actually get to fight Clayface fun. If you're a gamer and I don't play a whole lot of video games, but I, I've played the Batman Arkham asylum and Arkham city. They're great. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. I like Clayface. I like the idea of this character. I think he's a very interesting and formidable threat for Batman because he can attack Batman in ways that his other enemies don't typically attack him. But when I think of Clayface, my default is the animated series version, as as Kyle said, is sort of a gestalt of the ideas that we see in all of these different Clayfaces. From the Matt Hagen, the, the able to kind of change his form, change his shape to impersonate other people, to the Basil Carlo with the actor's background and, and wanting to be the star, but what they did with that and that story of with Ron Perlman voicing him and how he had this tragic accident and how he became an addict trying to get this new substance that could make him look like a star again and just a, a wonderful story, wonderful character. I love that version of Clayface. But I also, you know, reading through these stories, I wish I could see more with the, the Basil Carlo as a as a slasher killer on in Hollywood. And the Preston Payne version of, you know, the Mr. Heat Miser to, uh, to Mr. Freeze's Cold Miser. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Matt Hagen, I mean, the obvious combination of the animated Clayface is the, is the, the Matt Hagen uh, muck monster plus the uh, Basil Carlo actor. But you get the Preston Payne from the Disfigurement. So, yep. you know, it's it, it was a good combo of... Of all the three, I mean, yeah, Lady Clay existed, but she was basically a female version of of Matt Hagen, right? Uh, so you know, all of the uh, all the different power sets and, and personalities of the Clayface just rolled into one, and that's why those guys are freaking geniuses, and they should have been put in charge of DC long ago. <laughs> Agreed. So. Guys, I want to thank both of you again for being on the Secret Origins podcast. This was a whole lot of fun reviewing these stories for good or bad. Chris, where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, you can find me right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, on the Supermates podcast I host with my wife, Cindy, and on the Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly. Kyle, where else can people find you? I have two uh, podcast networks. You can find uh, a bunch of different shows uh, that I do under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I took the month of July off, and so now I have episodes coming out here in August. And you can also find me on the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast, where I put out one episode a month, roughly. And each episode cover an adventure of my two favorite DC characters, the original Captain Marvel and Superman. And then, of course, I'm also occasionally on the... uh, 
about every other episode anyway, on the G.I. Joe Real American Headcast with Ryan here and our pal Aaron Moss. Thank you again. This was great talking to you guys again. Have a good night. Thanks for having me. Last episode of Secret Origins Podcast covered issue 43 and the stories of Hawk and Dove, Cave Carson, and Chris KL99. Despite my best efforts to be a jerk about those stories, the episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Between the Pages, Brian Mulvey, Candela's Right Hand, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Cullen Stapleton, Dan at Dinosaur No One, Daniel R. Budnick, David Gutierrez, DC in the 80s, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, El Coso del Pantano, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Gabriel M. Cox, Gene Hendricks, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, Jim Bow, Keith G. Baker, Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Matches Balone, Paul underscore The Pullbox, Richard Field, Rift, World Spine Network, World Spine Podcast, Scott Rowland, Transform and Rollout, Treasury Comics, Two True Freaks, Willie Yarbrough, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zavisha. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Aaron Head Moss, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Chris Franklin, Chris Tyler, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Danny Ulrich, David Ace Gutierrez, David Fiore, David Trenner, Dale Dale, Feathers and Foes, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, The Headcast Network, The Irredeemable Shag, Jared West, Jay Jones, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Neil Whitney, Pat Sampson, Paul Alves, Rob Kelly, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Sean Strawbridge, six Seans, can you believe it? Silver and Gold Podcast, Task Force X Podcast, Van Z, and Vinnie Gianfredi III. I also got a message on Facebook from Vinnie Gianfredi who said, I came across your Plastic Man episode a few months ago while doing research for a podcast of my own called Presumptuous and Rude. At the time, I had no idea what Secret Origins was, and figured I'd scan the Plastic Man portion for a possible fact or two I didn't know. A wealth of knowledge and insight later, I was quite pleased. After my cohorts and I recorded our episode, I went back and listened to the segment again, and again. Next, it was the entire episode. After that, I realized I might as well just start from the beginning and get it over with. I've almost caught up, and my only complaint so far is realizing that this is a finite podcast. I'd especially like to tip my hat to your weekly music selections, and my single favorite moment so far is the funny, somewhat fourth-wall-breaking point in the Zatanna and Zatara episode when Professor Allen offered you a bit of marriage advice. As much as I hate to see, or rather hear, the podcast slowly coming to an end, I'm glad to have come across it, and I'm sure I'll indulge in at least a few repeat listens. It's even introduced me to a few new podcasts that have made my regular rotation. Thanks for the undoubted plethora of time and effort it must take putting this thing together. 
Well, thank you very much, Vinny, for those generous words. I am always proud to hear when someone discovers the show somewhat in the middle and likes it enough to go back to the beginning. And if you discovered some other great podcasts through this show, I'm happy to hear that too. Maybe some of my other listeners will check out Presumptuous and Rude, which is available on iTunes. So check that out. Moving on to the website feedback. As always, you are welcome and encouraged to leave a comment on the Fire and Water Podcast website at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And I got a lot of comments on the last episode. Maybe I should call every issue the worst I've ever read in the series. That seemed to invite a lot of discussion about the stories in issue 43, either because they agreed with me or they really did not. The first comment for episode 43 came from Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, who was part of the last episode talking about Hawk and Dove. Paul said, Fantastic to be part of this podcast, Ryan, and especially in such good company. I wonder if the darkening of Cave Carson was part of the Let's Dirty Up All Our Heroes movement that swept DC at the time, giving us drunk Hal Jordan, greedy womanizer Wally West, drug addict Kitar Hall, and who can forget everyone on Ron actually hates you, Adam Strange. It certainly seems that way, and we will definitely get more into the darkening of Cave Carson's story a little bit later. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez of the Late Lamented Ultraverse Podcast Network, now slumming it as executive producer of Pod Dylan, listed the highlights of last episode. The Professor, a doctor, Paula Abdul's duet with an animated cat. Ryan, this show has nowhere to go but straight down now. I totally agree, David. I ought to just quit right now. Nobody really cares about the last six issues. Uh, got a comment from Paul in KC. I'm assuming that's Paul in Kansas City. Uh, Paul said, I believe the female hawk died in the Blackest Night crossover. I looked that up, and yes, Holly Granger, the sister of Dawn Granger, became a version of Hawk at some point, but the Black Lantern Hank Hall ripped her heart out in Blackest Night Titans issue 1. Uh, Jeff R., who notoriously hates the Lords of Order and Chaos, certainly had something to say about last issue. Ah, Hawk and Dove, the series that proves that there are no characters so bad that they cannot be made worse by connecting them to the Lords of Order and Chaos. At least Cave Carson and Chris KL99 have that going for them. Ouch. Rob Kelly, from basically half the shows on the Fire and Water Network, said... I never really liked Hawk and Dove as characters. Even as a fuzzy-headed, bleeding heart wants to force everyone to get gay-married liberal, I always realized as a superhero, Dove just doesn't work. That moment in Crisis when he stops Robot Man from smashing the crystallized Black Adam into tiny bits remains one of my most hated moments for the character. Rejiggering them as chaos and order makes sense, but by then I had long stopped caring. I am positive the next episode featuring a Hawk character will be much more interesting. Ooh, advanced plug for episode 45, coming in two weeks. Rob also said, As guests start clocking their final Secret Origins appearances, this show is going to be like the last six months of Johnny Carson's tenure on The Tonight Show. Not that I mind that, it's just an observation. To which Greg Arujo said, Now I want to know who will be singing Here's That Rainy Day to Ryan during Secret Origins episode 49. And I want to know, Greg, why you don't just assume it'll be Bette Midler. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I never liked the original Hawk and Dove combo, but Dawn and Hank led a majorly fun comic, until all the order and chaos and mushy stuff came in. 
Usually I'm great with the Lords of Order. I loved how they gave Amethyst a shot in the arm, adored Flaw and Child, but they just ruined Hawk and Dove. Yeah, they always got their powers from some mystic voice, but after that they were pretty much street-level heroes. Making them all hairy and glowy? No thanks. Martin's mention of Flaw and Child reminded me of something else that I hated about Hawk and Dove's origin story last issue. I had this in my notes, but when I recorded with Ange and Paul, I already felt like I was pounding at the story that couldn't defend itself, so I pulled back and just ignored half of my problems with it. But the flaw and child thing really, really bothered me. And if you don't know what that is, there's a kid who shows up at Barter's place in the Origin to trade him this artifact that tells him about the Lords of Order and Chaos. But the child is just referred to or named Child, and the trade they make is for a large gem called Flaw. And aside from the fact that those are stupid names, they make the dialogue confusing. When Barter hands the kid a gem and says, Here, child, here is Flaw, my brain tells me that the script or the letterer forgot to add some words, because nobody should ever speak like that. And again, those names might be explained or justified by the Hawk and Dove series, but not in the so-called origin story. So that's a failing, and it made me mad. Anyway, getting back to Martin's comment, he said, I'm not a fan of the whatever happened to the secret origin of Cave Carson story here. The darkened hero world was already a cliché by the time this appeared. What's wrong with embracing the wonder of the concept, rather than showing that Cave and company trod underground with feet of clay? Chris Franklin, who you heard on this episode and also on the Supermates podcast, said, I like Tim Truman's artwork, but who really wanted to deconstruct Cave Carson? There's barely a foundation to take apart. When Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale give the Challengers of the Unknown the same treatment a few years later, it makes a bit more sense. Their original title lasted for years, and then they had a few revivals as well. Chris KL99 may be the biggest head-scratcher of the entire series, a new secret origin for a character no one was going to do anything with. I like Workman's art well enough, and I recall he did a very Mike Sikowski-like JLA Secret Files profile page during the much-lamented Silver Age fifth-week event in the late 90s. Speaking of which, why was this dedicated to Mike Sikowski? That was something that Professor Allen and I forgot to talk about. Uh, yeah, there's a dedication at the end of the issue to Mike Sikowski, who died early in 1989, probably when Secret Origins 43 was being prepped. Sikowski never worked on Chris Kale 99, or the others, I don't think. He never worked on Secret Origins, to my recollection. All I can assume is that Mark Wade, who has demonstrated his love for the Silver Age of Comics time and time again, chose to dedicate this issue to the guy who both created the Justice League of America and drew it for like 10 years. It feels weird that this would be included in, you know, the Chris Kale 99 or Secret Origins 43 of all issues, and the fact that it's so clearly tacked onto the bottom of the last page, which isn't even a good last page for the story, it's just a sort of weird dedication that feels, I don't want to say half-hearted, although the printing looks pretty cheap, but misplaced, I guess. Uh, we got a comment from Sean Walsh. Sean has been liking the podcast on Facebook for a while now, but I think this is his first comment on the website, and if that is the case, welcome, Sean. Uh, Sean says, I think I'm proud to say that I own the Time Master's trade, so I ran to it and cracked it open to check out the details of how Cave Carson's stolen Nazi gold factored into that Rip Hunter story. 
Basically, he helps rescue Rip Hunter and his group just before their headquarters blows up, and takes him to his old underground base, and offers the loot he has just sitting in a storage room as a way for Rip Hunter to rebuild his equipment and fund his adventuring to defeat the story's big bad, Vandal Savage, of course. That's it. One could say Carson is drawn in a dejected way when the loot is shown, and read into that about his feelings on still possessing Nazi gold, but the writers Wayne and Shiner sadly offer nothing else character-wise to back that up. Thanks for looking into that, Sean. We will hear more about the stolen gold in a little bit. Uh, Sean also said, I grabbed this issue out of a 50-cent bin a few years ago solely because of Cave Carson and Chris Kale 99 in the lower left corner of this Paris Collins cover. I love the obscure folks who show up in this last year of Secret Origins. It's mostly page filler, yes, but I've always been a fan of giving forgotten heroes, literally in Carson's case, a little modern exposure. And yes, I'm also buying that new Gerard Way Cave Carson comic because of the title, and Michael Avon Oming's art. I didn't know Mike Oming was drawing a book, but now I'm really intrigued. Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines podcast and the Rolled Spine podcast network said, You guys tell the story of Hawk and Dove a lot nicer than I heard it, and it's a tale of immediate creative and commercial failure, whose failure is the one thing everyone involved could agree upon. My understanding is that noted right-winger Steve Ditko created the book with the intention that Hawk be the hero after his own heart, while Dove would merely be a straw man through which Ditko would criticize the impotent pinko lefties. Steve Keats was offended by this both due to his opposing political orientation and on a pure storytelling basis. Skeets would use the dialogue to give Dove the more sympathetic and intelligent personality, while Hawk was made brutish, despite being vastly more proactive in the art. Ditko was furious that his message was being corrupted by Skeets and immediately quit, soon followed by Skeets. And then the book was cancelled after only six issues, despite boasting Gil Kane art. So the creators had bad experiences, the characters went unfulfilled, the publisher was hot to kill the book, and the fans were not enthused by it either. Unfortunately, their design was okay, there was the kernel of a good idea in Hawk and Dove, and they were college-aged heroes. So they joined the periphery of Teen Titans Adventures, so they got to play in New Teen Titans era, so we'll never be rid of them. I'm a loud, galling liberal, but I enjoy Steve Ditko's libertarian-slash-objectionist Charlton work a lot better than his time as a square peg at DC. Stalker somewhat accepted, because he had a sympathetic but more centrist writer in Joe Gill to massage his message into something commercially viable. At Charlton, it felt like Ditko was creating heroes for his worldview, where at DC it seemed like he was trying to join the old hacks and attempting to replicate Marvel Comics without understanding how beyond aping the most superficial aspects of the competition. Stanley absolutely deserves the criticism he has received and more besides, but there are no Marvel Comics without him, and Ditko never had Marvel within himself as evidenced by the likes of Hawk and Dove. Frank went on to talk about Cave Carson, suggesting that the uncharacteristically dark and ethically compromised origin story was of a piece with the type of reinventionist storytelling DC and Marvel pushed in the wake of Alan Moore and Frank Miller. The problem, Frank goes on to explain, and which has been generally agreed to, I think, by most fans of our ilk, is that all of that reinvention pollutes the shared universe concept by breaking the infrastructure rather than reinforcing it. On the Chris Kale 99 entry, Frank said, 
I'll take 1980s Whatever Happened To over Secret Origins every time, because the former was all about telling a complete story that regarded the character's history, while the latter was too often preoccupied with setting up questionable stories maybe to come, or fixing what wasn't broken. More wrecks the first Wonder Dog on the moon and less screwing around with Chris KL-99-25 or 6-24 to a fanbase made up of Father Mackenzie's parishioners. I've always liked John Workman's retro newspaper strip style, but here he looks more like a 1970s liberal utopian PSA poster from the public health clinic. It's interesting to see this style applied to a Silver Age nobody, and the story similarly feels like an O. Henry wannabe one-off sci-fi short for an off-brand sci-fi anthology. My one concern is that I'm uncomfortable with everyone in the story looking like a life model class nude with painted-on unitards. Again, an aesthetic about a decade deferred. Darren Sutherland of Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles podcasts said, It was a great idea to have both Paul and Ange as guests, but even with both of them on the show, they weren't able to balance the scales between their love of Hawk and Dove and Ryan's completely opposite view. Great discussion. Andy's enthusiasm for Cave Carson made me want to read more of those stories, though not that origin story. And, of course, hearing Professor Allen talk about sci-fi comics is always great fun. I also enthusiastically recommend his reviews of the excellent Adam Strange comics at Relatively Geeky. Okay, so this episode inspired Darren to want to read other comics, but not the one we covered. I kind of agree with that. Jeff Nettleton said, while talking about why the premise of Hawk and Dove doesn't work for him, I hated the whole order and chaos shtick going on at DC at that point. It bored me. DC didn't have a Michael Moorcock writing for them to make it work. The closest was Neil Gaiman, who used them as minor figures in Season of Mists. Steve Ditko created Dove to be a punching bag, which made him a useless character from the get-go. A better way to go would be to treat him like Kane in Kung Fu, a spiritual pacifist who fights only to defend. That fits into the superhero world better, though you still wouldn't have someone who would seek combat. Like Kung Fu, you'd need to give him a quest that brings him into repeated conflict. I still don't see why someone like that would want to pal around with someone with Hawk's temperament and personality, though. Uh, Jeff said he loved the Cave Carson story, and then added, DC should revive adventure comics and use it for pulp adventures of characters like the Challengers of the Unknown, Cave Carson, the original Secret Six, King Faraday, Sarge Steele, and other adventure characters. Get guys like Chuck Dixon, Mike Grell, Bo Smith, John Ostrander, and Tim Truman to do work on them, and just let them go to town. I don't see the current regime doing that. Oh, how we miss you, Jeanette Kahn, Paul Levitz, and Dick Giordano. Uh, then Jeff commented on the Nazi gold thing that bothered me and Andy so much. You guys are misunderstanding the gold issue in the story. There were laws in place that prevented gold hoarding and the like. Currency markets, while the gold standard was in place, underwent big upheaval in the post-World War II era, eventually leading Nixon to take U.S. currency off the gold standard. Cave and the gang would have had to turn in the gold, not because it was stolen, but because of gold ownership restrictions. That, yeah, that doesn't make me feel any differently about his actions. Uh, finally, Jeff said, 
One thing worth mentioning is how undersung Barbara Randall, the ex-Barbara Kessel, was. She was an excellent editor and writer, and she demonstrated it in snippets when she got the chance. She moved on from DC to Dark Horse, where she got to stretch her muscles some more, though some of that was on their rather dull Comics Greatest World stuff. She also worked at CrossGen, but hasn't been around the mainstream in a while. I suspect the fact that she has been outspoken about sexism in the industry hasn't won her friends at DC, where sexual harassers are protected. Shame, really. You'd think that with the big two giving lip service to diversity, they'd seek out people with a rep for that. Hey, if Roger Ailes can be brought down by sexual harassment, maybe the comics industry can finally change. Other than that, I agree with everything you said about Barbara Randall. FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast, all about Captain Adam and Booster Gold, said, I agree with Hicks that Armageddon 2001 ruined Hawk and Dove, but they weren't the only casualties. Captain Adam was never the same. His title was cancelled, probably more due to sales than Armageddon 2001, and he became more and more confusing and convoluted. In the pages of Extreme Justice, Monarch returned and was revealed to be Captain Adam. It makes my brain hurt. To which Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics blog said, Hey, hey, let's not forget Armageddon the Alien Agenda, which followed Captain Adam and Monarch jumping around through time while trying to deal with aliens having some kind of agenda. I'd never heard of that, but ah, yikes. Uh, Clinton then returned to shamelessly plug one of his blogs, armageddon2001.blogspot.com. If any of you want to know more about that crossover event or you just want to revisit it, Clinton has been reviewing the series there. Check that out, but know in advance that only two of the books relate to Hawk and Dove. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to you. Bradley Null left a comment. Bradley was on episode 30 when we covered The Elongated Man. And speaking of that, if you get digital comics on Comixology, they just released this past week the first issue of The Elongated Man miniseries by Gerard Jones and Mike Parabek. Presumably the other three issues will be released on subsequent Thursdays. Also brand new on Comixology is issue one of The Hawk and the Dove, the first issue of Hawk and Dove's series that followed up their debut in Showcase 75. If you want more of their early material, check that out. See if you can tell exactly when Steve Ditko left and Dick Giordano finished. Uh, anyway, Bradley Null said, I own this issue. I hate this issue. I'm noticing the less I liked an issue, the more I seem to like the corresponding podcast. This was a great episode. Okay, good to know. I mean... I also hated last issue, but really enjoyed the podcast, so, yeah, cool. Jimmy McGlinchey said, I also read the Cave Carson story in the Time Masters trade paperback. Cave was part of the story, but again was not a nice character. He was having an affair with his research assistant at the start of the story and broke it off with her when the university found out. This led him recommending her to Rip Hunter to help him in his quest. Cave then later joined Rip's team to help with the financial assistance, as I recall. Cave Carson also turned up in the early issues of the Eclipso series. He was recommended by Amanda Waller to Bruce Gordon to help his team through the caves of Parador to spy on Eclipso. Unfortunately, Eclipso eclipsed a whole cave of bats which attacked the team. Later on, it was revealed that Cave Carson had his legs broken by Eclipso and dumped over the border. Jeez, man, from the sound of things, the frontman for My Chemical Romance might be the first writer to treat Cave Carson with respect in 40 years. And Jimmy closes out his message saying, Despite the lackluster lineup of characters, you and your guests made this a great show to listen to, and you should have more fun with the Mud Pack episode next time out. Well, I hope we did. What do you guys think? 
And the last comment on the website came from Dead Robin. If you guys don't know Dead Robin, you haven't been listening to enough of the Pulped Pixels podcast, because he's a regular fixture on those shows along with Dr. G, the man of nerdology. Dead Robin said, I will really miss this show when you wrap up in nine short episodes. Finishing this entire series is a real accomplishment. I don't know that even Roy Thomas has read that much Roy Thomas. Well, I can't say that the last nine episodes will be short. Some of them maybe, but issue 50 was 96 pages long. Uh, Dead Robin talked about how he collected issues of Secret Origins that lined up with the ongoing series that he was following, which included Animal Man and Hawk and Dove. He praised the Animal Man origin from issue 39, then added, While this Hawk and Dove issue does not reach those heights, it does add two key elements to the Hawk and Dove monthly. Details about the barterer and the origin of why Hank and Don were originally given their powers by the Lords of Order and Chaos. In the continuum of the monthly book, this issue works really well. As an issue of Secret Origins, well... But given how subpar some of the straight origin issues are, I'd actually rather have an issue that ties directly into an ongoing series. In fact, that might have been a better model for the series. I'm reminded of how good that Suicide Squad issue was as the lead-in to the new series. It makes more sense as a business model than let's let Roy Thomas dive into the golden age of comics like Scrooge McDuck into a vault of gold. Dead Robin goes on, the Cave Carson origin made zero sense at the time, but it was nice that this episode came out as excitement for Gerard Way's Young Animal line is building. I'm really hopeful that this is the second renaissance for boutique lines at DC. It is an absolute shame that Vertigo went from the pinnacle of creativity and risk to a husk of its former self. Maybe this line can inject DC with some much-needed weirdness that made DC in the late 80s so fun and inventive. The cynic in me says that won't happen just because of DC and Warner Brothers' corporate approach to these properties, but we could end up being wrong. Maybe Young Animal will turn out to be the vertigo we've been missing. Uh, that is it for the website comments, but I also got some emails from Christopher Lewis. The first one Chris sent in after listening to episode 42 starring Phantom Girl and the totally grim gay ghost. Loving the podcast, Secret Origins was a bit before my comic buying started, so it's not a series I was familiar with, but I'm really enjoying the story recaps from you and your guest hosts. As your gay listener, I just wanted to thank you for your sincere but awkward attempt at political correctness at the top of the show. Much appreciated. Well, you are welcome, Chris, and it's adorable that you refer to yourself as my gay listener, like you're the only one. I assure you, you are not. Uh, Chris goes on, it was funny that you and Siskoid mentioned how a Vertigo revamp for the gay ghost might look. I had been thinking through the segment that a queer, i.e. politically active gay rather than odd, writer could use a reinvigorated gay ghost to make some serious points about homophobia and homophobic abuse and violence in contemporary society. But perhaps that is too politically charged a story for DC at present. Yeah, uh, DC has always been the more conservative company of the big two, but now I don't think either DC or Marvel would approach that material as a mainstream story. The superheroes that originated in comics have the most value as IPs for the movie studios, so Disney and Warner Brothers aren't going to risk damaging those properties. Then again, to even suggest that Gay Ghost would have mainstream story appeal is probably giving the character way too much credit. Having said that, I like the idea of having a spectral character like the Spectre, who is perhaps the victim of a hate crime coming back from the dead as an avenger of that type of violence. It's problematic, though, because it's still a very niche 
type of character motivation. And I don't mean to demean or downplay the seriousness or the scope of homophobia. What I mean is, when you take a sort of primordial character type, like the Avenging Ghost, basically the Spectre, and you assign him a particular political or social cause, you can't do that half-assed. It raises a whole lot of questions and potential pitfalls that need to be addressed. For instance, the mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. A tragedy like that is a great inciting event for a gay ghost character. But what happens when a heterosexual couple is walking down the street and shot by a mugger? Does the gay ghost intervene then? Can a straight or cis ghost not feel outrage at the Orlando shooting? There are structural questions that need to be addressed, and we see this type of thing no more prevalently than in the response to the Black Lives Matter movement being hashtag All Lives Matter. And for the record, I think All Lives Matter is stupid and promotes willful ignorance and indifference to an actual societal problem. And... People can hide behind the All Lives Matter slogan thinking that they're making a bold statement that we could all be equal. That is fundamentally mistaking the point, because the message they're actually sending is what makes the black community so special. Why do they deserve special treatment now? And that, like I said, misses the damn point, because the point of Black Lives Matter is that they're not asking to be treated better than those other groups, merely to be treated as equal, something that has never been done in this country. So, I don't remember what I was talking about. Yeah, gay ghost. Anyway, you can have a version of the Spectre with a social agenda. In fact, I would love to see that story. But it is a potential minefield for a creator who wanted to attempt it. And at this point, we've gone so far astray from the original concept of the gay ghost that it might as well just be a wholly new character. Uh, and the last thing that Chris said in his email was... Oh, and your musical interludes are excellent choices. They take me back to my younger days. Happy to hear that, Chris. And that, I think, is going to do it for this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Once again, I want to thank Kyle Benning and Chris Franklin for helping me out on this one. We had to postpone our recording date twice, but I really wanted to have them both on for the entire issue instead of breaking it up. And I am grateful that we were finally able to work it into our schedules. I also want to thank everyone who supported the show on social media or wrote in with comments or emails. A lot of new names recently in the feedback section, and that really makes me feel good to know that people are still discovering the show and writing in. That is really awesome, and frankly, it helps ease the pain when I realize someone like Michael Chiaroscuro hasn't left a comment in six months. Oh well. Hey. Next episode, we'll be talking about Secret Origins Special Number 1, with even more Batman villains to discuss. I've got three returning champions and one brand new guest making his first appearance on the Secret Origins podcast. Who is this mystery guest? You'll just have to tune in next time to find out. Unless Clinton Robinson spoils it himself. Until then... Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Tell me what I see.
I wonder if all the Carol Danvers first appearances just spiked because they actually announced who was playing, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Captain Marvel, Miss Miss Marvel slash Captain Marvel. Right. I wonder if that, those all jumped. Probably. <laughs> oh, I saw somebody. I either saw it on Facebook or Twitter, but like CNN had like a coverage of that, and it was Shazam. Brie Larson cast as Captain Marvel. <laughs> Oh, CNN. You try, you try so hard, but <laughs> would have taken two minutes of research to figure out what you've done wrong. 